All right. Hey, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn in the Old Testament to the book of Lamentations. I'm sure you're very familiar where that is, right? The uh, book of Lamentations is after the prophet Jeremiah. Um, and I want to I just start off by saying something because he, they've done such a good job of that this week. Um, you, I hope you've noticed, but sometimes it's, we don't notice because things that go on because they just go on uh, naturally. And, and so we don't, we're not necessarily paying attention even though we're being changed by it. Uh, week by week, our worship leaders, when they stand up here, before they get here, they spend time putting together uh, the service. And by that, what I mean is um, we communicate, talk to them about what I'm going to be talking about that week, right? What, what texts we're preaching on and all that stuff. And they look to find songs in particular that speak to those themes so that we don't have one section of our worship that's all about this and then Rick gets up and he got one thing and then we go on to another section that's not connected. The goal is that everything from start to finish will have a, a stream of connection that kind of wraps up our worship experience. And um, Rob, I think Rob did most of it, but I know Rob and Peter kind of worked together on this. They did a great job this week of, um, of doing that because of where we're headed this morning. So, um, yeah, so over the last couple weeks, we've been, we've been going through this series called Reconsider. And we've been doing that, um, trying to speak to some of the questions that both um, Christians have about their own faith and that um, those that are either um, walking away from Christianity or those that are thinking about Christianity, maybe not even thinking about it, just folks who just have doubts and, and questions and concerns because uh, we've been talking about them because so often in church they don't get voiced. And when they don't get voiced, it often gives the impression that we don't think those questions are valid. They are valid. In fact, most of us have them. We just don't tell anybody because we're afraid they're not valid. So we're giving voice to them. A couple, you know, we started off talking about our understanding of God and we talked about these different kind of cultural understandings. Many of those understandings we've come into this place with, right? God is a Coke machine. God is Superman who's to save you from all harm. God is kind of the, the one who's constantly giving you this feeling of, of warm fuzzies, you know, that kind of thing. Then we talked about the Bible. We talked about what it is and what it isn't. Um, and then last week we talked about the resurrection and why um, it's actually historically tenable, even if fantastical, right? This week we come to what I think is probably the biggest question, or at least the one that gets voiced the most, right? And that's what do we do with bad things, right? Bad things, good God. How do we reconcile those things? Here's a, here's a sneak preview. I'm not going to reconcile them for you, okay? Some of that is because I'm not smart enough to figure it out. Some of that's because the Bible doesn't reconcile them for us at least not in the way that we want satisfied. It gives us something different. It gives us a concept called lament. So we're in Lamentations chapter three this morning. If you have your place there, if you'd stand in honor of God's word. 
I'm going to be reading Lamentations 3, verses 19 through 27. is God's word. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. God's word given for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Lord, for 2,000 years plus, because God's people didn't just start wrestling with this question when Jesus came. They've been wrestling with this question for a long time wrestled with it in the book of Job, wrestled with it in the Proverbs, wrestled with it in the Psalms. Even we see it in the patriarchs, wrestling with it, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We wrestle with it, Lord, because uh, we want answers. And we want the world that we were made for. The one that is here now but not yet. We want a world where pain and suffering and death and sickness and injustice no longer exist. So Lord, I I ask that you would give us eyes to see this morning and ears to hear and a heart that will find you bigger than our doubts. Not because those doubts aren't real, but understanding where they stem from. And I ask you to do it in Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat. So on, um, on sports talk radio, of which I listen a good bit, or, um, or even on podcasts, they have this game that they play. It's called Either, Neither, or Both. And it goes something like this. Either JMU will make the college top 25 this year, or Virginia Tech, or neither, or both. We'll find out in a few hours, won't we? But the whole point is, is that you're supposed to decide whether one is true, both is true, or neither. Simple enough, right? Well, that's actually the classical way of dealing with the question of the goodness of God. It goes like this. Either God is all-powerful or fully good. Either, neither, certainly not both. Because if he's both, then how do we deal with the, the problems? And by problems, I, that, that makes it sound, I don't know, mundane, benign. What do we do with evil? What do we do with injustice? What do we do with sick and dying children? What do we do with, um, with, with mothers or fathers dying too young? What do we do with just hurricanes and, and, and tragedy and flooding? What do we do with all this stuff? So God must be either good but not powerful or powerful but not good but he cannot be both in our estimation right you've heard this maybe you've thought this maybe you're thinking it right now if this is where you're at let me let me say this first um 
Because the final option is that there's no such thing as God. And I, I qualify this with the fact that this is the case, this either, neither, or both, or there's no God, is really more the issue in the Western world. That sounds really funny to us, but if you were to go ask a third world person, someone who actually experiences the things that we just look on TV and see, they don't have the problem with it that we do. They don't seem to have an issue with the fact that they're experiencing injustice and suffering, and yet there's a good God. And so if, the, if that's where you're at, I would caution you to not draw your conclusions about God from someone else's story. Let them draw their own conclusions from their own story. And maybe even listen to how they draw their conclusions from that story. Because what we often find is that when we take an honest look at things, where you find extraordinary suffering or poverty, you often find extraordinary faith in God, strangely enough. So you can use your story, you can use your pain to draw your conclusions, but realize that when you use someone else's to draw your conclusions, you're often insulting them because you're drawing conclusions that they wouldn't. You're telling them how they must think, how they must conclude because they obviously don't get it the way you do, right? And so we're looking at this issue, this issue of the, the problems of evil through the biblical category of lament. And so uh, we're gonna look at it in three ways if you have that outline out. If not, don't worry about it. We're gonna look at the problems of evil. We're gonna look at the Christian tension. Then we're gonna navigate that tension as best we Okay, let's get started with the problems. And I say problems of evil and injustice, plural, because it is often assumed that the fact of evil and injustice is only a problem for theists, which by that I mean people who believe in God, right? That evil is only an issue for those who believe in a God and particularly a good God, but it isn't actually. That said, it is a problem, it's just not just our problem, okay? Because to deny that there's an issue here, if you're, if you're here and you're like, I, I don't struggle with this, blah, blah, blah. To deny that there's an issue here is rather naive, to be honest. And, and pat answers aren't very helpful, right? Um, gosh, how long has it been now? 12 years? 12 years ago, 13 this December, my oldest son, Andrew, who would not like me to say the fact that he is dressed exactly like me today, but I'm going to say it anyway. And I had already left the house when he got dressed, so, you know, me, me, me. Okay. Um, <laughs> sorry, buddy. You don't normally get it. It's normally your sister. So um, about 12 years ago, almost 13, my son, Andrew, was diagnosed with cancer, neuroblastoma. And if you're a Christian here, you will probably know what I mean when I say that Romans 8.28 was very true when that happened. God does work all things for the good of those who love him, but it was not very helpful. Right? So pat answers aren't very helpful. So let's try and not do that, okay? Let me lay out how this problem works. The scriptures are very clear that God is all-powerful, sovereign over all things. It says in the Psalms that he, he moves the heart of a king like, like waters in his hand. Like he moves things. He is the creator and there is no other. He is omnipotent, meaning he has all power. He is omniscient, meaning he knows all things. He is omnipresent, meaning he is everywhere at the same time. The scriptures are also clear on the fact that he is very 
good. First John, which is one of the letters at the end of the New Testament, says that God is love, right? Not that he does love, though he does, but he is love. Like it's essential to his nature. But then, of course, the scriptures also declare that there is evil, there is sin, there is brokenness, there is injustice. All of these things are declared in the same book and sometimes in the same breath, like in the same line. They're all declared at the same time. And this seems incongruent, right? Because if if God is good, then of course he would only allow good things, right? That's what we think. It's not what the Bible says, but it's what we think. That's what makes sense to us. He wouldn't allow bad things. He would want justice all the time and not injustice, right? But the problem is that story after story, not just in our experience, but in the Bible itself, the very book that says all of these things, the stories in it show injustice and evil. So then how can God be good and powerful? Isn't that a contradiction? Well, this is all theoretical right now, right? But we tend to ask these questions not because of a theory, but because of life. So in light of this, some of us simply say that God must not exist. Or if he does, we wouldn't want to worship him anyway. Right? I should say, and if you're not a Christian, just listen in for a second because this point is kind of an in-house point. This is an issue no matter where you stand on the question of God's sovereignty. Okay? Obviously, we're part of the Reformed tradition. We believe that God is sovereign over all things, including our hearts. However... There are plenty of folks, probably many of you in this room, who struggle with that. Like, I, you know, no, no, no. I have this thing I call free will that I do, uh, that, that I have. And so, therefore, I get out of the problem of the problem of evil by screaming free will. I get God off the hook, right? Well, it doesn't really help. Because, you see, you, with one, you have to deal with why God would plan such things. That's hard. But in the other, you have to figure out how you deal with a God who could do something but doesn't because he wants to respect you. And can I tell you, when you're going through pain, respect is probably the last thing you want. You just want it to stop, right? So it's not, you don't get out. There's no easy way out. If there was, we wouldn't be having this conversation 2,000 years after the cross of Christ. Okay, so that's the biblical problem, but there's a secular one as well. Because it's not enough to simply say, well, I see injustice, I see pain, I see evil, so I can't believe in a just God or I can't believe in God at all. Smarter people than me have said it better, but it works out kind of like this. Things like injustice, things like evil, things like goodness, those are value statements. What I mean is this. If I see a rose, okay, that rose is not in and of itself obviously beautiful. It is declared beautiful. It is given value. Better example. This little green piece of paper right here I don't know how much, in fact, this green piece of paper is worth, but I can tell you this, it is not worth $100. It is worth this because we say it is. Right? 
And the economics guys in the room can go, yeah, yeah, and definitely because of the gold standard no longer used and blah, blah, blah. Okay, that's not what I want to get into. The point is value is given by persons. And so if you're going to say, I see evil, I see injustice, I see bad things, and therefore there must not be a good God, my question would be, who gets to say what is injustice? Who gets to say what is evil? You see, I know why I think that. I think that because I believe in an almighty creator, God, who created all things and then gave value to certain things, called them good, and said other things weren't. If you don't have that, then all you have is preference. You have, and we, we believe this, right? To some degree, we go, my truth, your truth. But it doesn't just extend to that. It has to be my justice and your justice. What I think is good versus what you think is good. C.S. Lewis would say that we only know what a crooked line is because we have seen a straight one. Right? There's a standard by which to judge. Removing God because of injustice actually undercuts your argument because it gets rid of the concept of justice. All you have is you. You have what you think is justice. And you may think, that's exactly right. I have what I think is justice and someone else has their think of justice. That's great. But if they steal your car, you're not very interested in their understanding of justice. Right? It's all well and good to say, you know, uh, people have been oppressed and so therefore they should be able to do what they want with their oppressors until they decide you're one of their oppressors. And they break into your house and take your things and you go, wait a minute, injustice. No, it's your justice, right? There's no injustice if there's no ultimate person declaring what is and what is not just. There is at best a cultural understanding that will shift and at worst, just people. Now, if you're thinking like, Rick, I thought you were talking about, what are you saying? There's no justice. I didn't say that. Like I said, I believe in justice because I believe there's a God who says what is just and what is unjust. And in our best, at our best, we as people model our justice after his. But that's, that's why I believe it. Because listen, I, listen, I believe, let's, let's use some hot button ones. I believe that racism both individual and actual legalized racism is sin and unjust. I believe that because there, I believe that, quite frankly, because there is a God who says that he made all men and women in his image, that there's no distinctions. Without that, the only appeal is, I don't like it. My preference is that people should be treated the same. You have no ground to stand on to say all, all men are created equal, all women are created equal. Who says? Because that has not been the overall category that the world has used throughout the vast majority of its history. It is used that because 2,000 years ago, a guy showed up on the scene who rose from the dead and declared this and actually enacted it in his life before he died. And then that faith took off and gave influence to so many cultures around the world. So that now we say, we're all created equal. But throughout all of human history, the vast majority of the time, it was whoever was in power was created better than those who weren't. That was just the case. So then if the biblical problem is because there is injustice, I can't believe in God, then the secular problem must be because there's no God, I can't believe in injustice. So we're at an impasse, right? Pack it up, go home. 
like I said before, the conclusions we tend to draw tend to be conclusions only drawn in the West. And if that is the case, unless we are being culturally arrogant, which we don't want to be, but we are, unless we're being culturally arrogant, we have to be open to the possibility that we are seeing things skewed and might need to look in another place to draw conclusions than from our own assumptions. And to do that, I'd like to return to the Bible to see how all this works out. And like I said, the Bible consistently talks about God being all-powerful, talks about him being very good, and yet is very honest about the problems of suffering, evil, and injustice. And so maybe we should figure out how the Bible deals with that before we judge, right? And the way the Bible deals with it, as I said before, is this category called lament. So let's, let's look at it, okay? So lamentations. I know all of us are super familiar with Lamentations. Um, Lamentations was written uh, more than likely by this prophet by the name of Jeremiah. Um, Jeremiah uh, is the author of the book right before uh, Lamentations. And it was written after the fall of Jerusalem. Now, why does that matter? In the Old Testament, Jerusalem is the very center of the world. It is the place where heaven and earth meet because that is the place where God's special presence dwells. It is the place of the throne of David, the family from whom will come the king that will rule over all the world. It is the place where God's purposes to fix our sin were kind of centralized. And yet, because of God's people sin, because of the fact that God's people uh, betrayed him, turned away from him, kind of uh, over hundreds of years refused the call to return to him, God allowed judgment to fall on Jerusalem. So the center of the world became a rubble heap. What do we tend to think when the center of our world becomes a rubble heap? We tend to think God has abandoned us, right? Sure, maybe it's not a place for you, but there's something in the center. And when it crumbles, we tend to think God has abandoned us. And so into the midst of this, into the midst of this comes these words from Jeremiah. Look at what he says. Look down at verse 19. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. Okay, so stop there. First off, we have to see that Jeremiah is reminding God of all the bad stuff, okay? Wormwood um, is understood to be very bitter. Gall, obviously, is bile, but nasty. This is all the nasty stuff, right? Remember the nastiness. And he says, remember these things, he continues, because my soul continually remembers them and is bowed down within me. Here's what he's saying, and you know this. When we go through evil, injustice, we'll just say bad things because we're in the first world. When we go through bad things, it eclipses everything, doesn't it? It's like it, whatever else is going on in our lives, this bad thing comes along and it's like, whoop, gets right in front of it and we can't see anything else. That's all there is. The important thing that I want to point out here is that Jeremiah is not hiding the bad from God. He's not hiding the bad from the God that he worships. It doesn't seem this badness, which is way worse than anything you and I have ever experienced, okay? This badness doesn't seem to be keeping him 
from believing in God, though he easily experienced things that we would never imagine. So look how he continues. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Okay, here it comes, ready? Jeremiah says, when suffering eclipses every other reality, what I will do is I will actively call to mind something. I will actively recall it. Not wait for things to passively happen. I will actively call to mind. And that something is the steadfast love of the Lord. That word steadfast, is, steadfast love is a, is, a, is a technical term in the Bible. In Hebrew, it's the word hesed. It means covenant faithfulness. It means faithfulness to promises. Steadfast love is, imagine steadfast love is someone loving you through all of your junk. Now all of your junk comes out and it's, you can't hide it anymore. It's just there. Some of us have had this experience. We do a very good job most of the time of hiding it. But sometimes God loves us enough to just rip away all those masks and it's on display. And steadfast love is that person who goes, I see it, and I see all of it, Ugh. but I love you. I'm not going anywhere. That's what steadfast love is. You see, the Bible is honest about the brokenness of the world, the existence of evil, and it doesn't apologize for it or try to explain it, much more than noticing that the fact that the world broke, and the world broke when we broke relationship with God, doubting his good heart for us. And that relational betrayal back in the garden brought us under guilt. It broke us and it broke the world and it alienated us from God. But God promised right there to make things right. He made what he calls a covenant to fix things. So when Jeremiah says that he actively recalls God's steadfast love, what he means is that he is taking his experience that has eclipsed everything else and he's trying to reframe it with a greater truth. He's not denying the truth of the bad. The bad is true, look at me. Some of you are going through it right now. That is true. There is nothing in the scriptures, there's nothing that should be in the church and I'm sorry if it has been. There's nothing that should be in the church that says your, your issues really don't hurt. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. Too blessed to be stressed. It's garbage. It doesn't deny the bad, but it reframes the bad with something that is greater. When we experience suffering, when we see evil, when we're victims of injustice, we tend to think, what do we tend to think? This is senseless. This is senseless. Like as if we, we look at it and we go, why on earth would this ever happen? The problem with that statement is that we are claiming to have a God's eye view of everything to make that judgment. We say it's senseless because we can't understand what sense it makes. And so therefore we judge God based on our limited perspective. You know what's funny about that? Listen, if there were like six of us in a room one night and, and something happened, and then two days later, the six of us got, to, got independently with someone and told them what happened, you know how many versions of that story you would have? Eight. 
we don't even have perfect perspective on things that are going on in our lives. Better yet, a God's eye view of all things to decide whether or not something has sense. Then we judge God or we deny him based on that. Here's why lament is so powerful in the life of the Christian. It does not deny suffering. Instead, what it does is it allows us to lay our faith in a God bigger than us and bigger than our suffering, who has promised that he is going to make things right. Now, as soon as I say that, some of us in the room, especially if, you're, if you've experienced suffering or if you're going through um, you know, uh, reenactions of, of trauma, things like that are thinking, Rick, that may be true, but it doesn't really help because I want to know why. I know. I've wanted to know why too. But listen, if you think God is big enough to stop bad things from happening, wouldn't he also be big enough to see things that we can't? Wouldn't he be big enough to see the ends that we can't see? The crazy thing is that most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, would claim that those, those times in which we've seen the most growth in our lives have been the times in which we have gone through the most difficult of our trials. So he reframes his suffering around God's promise to right things, which isn't just hope in the future, it's also trusting that he is doing that in the now. Let's look, look down at verse 24 to 27. He begins with this. The Lord is my portion. Now that may seem out of place, so let me flesh it out. Suffering and injustice are generally understood as us having something removed from us, right? Something is removed, something is taken from us, our health, our relationship, our dignity even. Again, this is not denied by Jeremiah. He, he doesn't deny any of it. He says, yeah, that's, that's what's going on. But Jeremiah claims that the Lord is his portion. In other words, because of the steadfast love of the Lord, he can never be taken from us. Suffering can take a lot of things. What did Jim Valvano say? Cancer can take away a lot of, it can take away my strength, it can take away my health, it cannot take away my spirit, cannot take away my mind. Like he said those things. He's not a Christian. Well, I don't know if he's Christian or not. Not important. I mean, he's doing his don't ever give up speech. Sorry, sports analogy again. Sorry, Kyle. Sorry. The Christian goes, it can't take away my God. Because God's connection to us is not based on our circumstances. It's not based on our injustice uh, going on. It's not even based on our ability to hold on to him. It's based on him. He cannot be taken from us. So then he says, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Listen, that phrase assumes suffering. The only reason you would say it is good if you wait quietly is if it is very possible that you're going to be screaming, which is what happens when we suffer. If things are going well in your life, you don't have to be reminded to wait quietly, do you? Things are great. It's awesome, man. It's beaches and rosebuds. It's when things go crazy. So here's what this means. God promised to fix things. He gave us himself, which was the first thing we ever lost. And he promises he'll take care of the rest. Does this get God off the hook? 
depending on what you mean by off the hook, no. I mean, I know what you probably mean. What you mean is like, well, give me an explanation. It doesn't get him off the hook in that sense, but it shows that the conclusions drawn from suffering and injustice are fundamentally not because of our circumstances. They are fundamentally because of a relationship. Listen, some of you have young kids. Mine aren't so young anymore. For the first several years of their life, every visit to the doctor's office included pain, right? We call them well visits. What that often means is getting poked visits, right? They experienced pain every time we took them to the doctor the first few of the years of their lives. But when they experienced that, what they did was they leaned in to Jess. They leaned in to me, not away. Because they didn't doubt our heart for them. In a very childlike way, they trusted that mom and dad knew more than they did, which we did. Because that little pinprick hurt. But polio's way worse. Right? They couldn't see it at the time. They may not be able to see it now even. But it's still true. Now, I know that doesn't clear up all the issues, right? That you might be having. So let me try and navigate the tension. Okay, first by talking about the suffering God. Because let's be honest. Most of the time when we get upset about and, and mad at God about suffering, it's because we think he's doing it to us and he's never had to deal with it himself, right? And we think that because, well, if I were God, I certainly wouldn't suffer, right? The problem is that this is not how the Bible presents God. This is the big difference between um, the way the Bible presents God and the way that the early church began to frame it over the next several centuries. Because the early church, let me nerd out for a second, the early church moved from a primarily Jewish context, primarily Hebrew and ancient Near Eastern context, into a Greek context. And into a Greek context, the Greeks, much like the Western culture that has come from them, tend to view any kind of change in anything as imperfection. And that if someone suffers, they're changing they're impacted by something. And if you be impacted by something, you must be imperfect. That is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible grieves. He rejoices. He sings over you. He delights. He's impacted. Now, does that change his essence, his nature? No. Come on. The Bible's real clear on that. But we do not have a God who is distant, aloof, and unable to be affected by anything. We have a God who became flesh in Jesus. Because you see, the promise to reconcile us to fix the world that we broke, God answered, not by distant fiat, may it be done. And then, it's done. He answered it by entering into our suffering and bearing it. Because we were stuck in our brokenness and guilt, God became flesh in Jesus to rescue us, and he suffered in our place. And that is why Jeremiah can call God's love steadfast and say that he is, he is his portion. He was looking toward when God would come and rescue him, not based on his obedience, because if you know anything about Jeremiah, you know that dude, I'm not saying he wasn't obedient, but he questioned God in some ways that none of us would think that was okay. He said, you should have just killed me. I have to put up with all this stuff. 
You meant harm for me, not good. Like all those things. We're like, you're not allowed to say that. Jeremiah said them. Said them all the time. He would not be rescued based on his obedience, but on God's faithfulness. And if it is based on God's faithfulness, if he didn't do anything to get it, then he can't do anything to lose it. But on the other hand, this also means that God can understand our suffering. And you and I, as soon as I said it, we're like, that is not possible. No way. But listen, you and I lose relationship, right? Either by death, by betrayal, by something else. So is God, and more so. See, the Father, Son, and Spirit, the triune God, they were in perfect relationship, one God in three persons for all of eternity. But Jesus, God the Son, was cut off from the Father on the cross. God is not distant from your suffering, from evil. In fact, he bore it all. And what did he do when he was on that cross? He bore injustice because he didn't deserve it. He bore ridicule because they mocked him while he was there. He bore shame because he was stripped naked and hung there for all to see. He bore, the, he bore the wrath of God and the hatred of men all at the same time. We get mad because we tend to think, God should keep me from this. But God didn't keep himself from that. So what do we do with it? Gosh, that's the truth. Some of us are like, well, then why am I even in this? Right? Because for some of us, we serve God because we hope that he's gonna make our lives better. And if that's you, if that's what you're struggling with right now, can I suggest you're not serving God? You're serving a better life. And you're using God to get it. And I love you, and if I didn't, I wouldn't tell you that. I'd let you just keep doing it. So what do we do with it? Because some of us are thinking, Ricky, you haven't solved the problem. You're right. If I did, I'd probably be on a speaking tours and selling lots of books. Christianity doesn't avoid the reality of suffering, and it also doesn't explain it away. It gives us lament. It gives us lament. Lament is what we see here. It is acknowledging our pain. It is acknowledging our grief. It is acknowledging our confusion, but doing so to God instead of as a justification to run from God. In the Bible, people bring their pain and their suffering to God because they know that he is the only one who can do something about it. They bring it to him acknowledging that they don't understand, but they also trust that he is still true no matter what their circumstances are. That is why there are so many, that is why like so many laments in the Bible end in praise. And when I say that, I need to caution us, okay? Because when I say so many laments end in praise, what we tend to think is, I'm not allowed to grieve. I'm not allowed to be in pain. I'm not allowed to suffer and to cry out, why to my God, and that's not true. You see, in so many of the Psalms that are lament Psalms, certain, those middle books in the Bible, there's a certain number of them that are, that are like lament, and they end in praise. And we read them in one sitting, in like 35 seconds, and we go, okay, so I get 15 seconds of being upset, and then I have to get happy again. Listen to me. None of us know how long it took to write that psalm. None of us know how long it took for someone to go from, why am I experiencing this, 
to yet again my heart will praise him. None of us know how long it went to go from I see the prospering of the wicked and I don't get it in Psalm 73 to but then I entered the tabernacle or the temple and I saw their end. It could have been years. It could have been seconds. But I doubt it. And so if you're going through suffering this morning, I want to tell you, none of this is meant to make light of what you're going through. Pain is pain. And just because your pain isn't as bad as the pain you've seen someone else go through doesn't mean it's not painful. What the scriptures would direct us towards, though, is not to use that pain as an excuse to turn from God, but instead to let it drive us to him. You don't understand. I don't understand. And no one else does either. If they say they do, they're pretending. They're lying to you. They're trying to make themselves seem like they're in control. Because when we say, I want to understand, isn't that what we're really looking for? Because even if we can't control the circumstances, at least I know what I'm supposed to have learned. At least I know why God has done this. Because then, you know, I, I, I have some semblance of, if I get it, he won't do it again. Right? If we can see what is being accomplished, we don't have to trust him with any of it. We can just trust that we understand. But instead, if we acknowledge the brokenness in us and around us, if we tell him how badly it hurts, even ask him why, but then actively seek to recall his steadfast love to us, it simply reframes it. It doesn't minimize it. It just reframes it. And so this problem remains, whether you have God in your paradigm or not. It shifts the focus of it, maybe, but it's still there. But in Jesus, we have a God who not only has come near to our suffering, but he has experienced it. He has redeemed it. And because of his resurrection, he proved that it will not have the last word. It didn't in his life. And by trusting in him, it will not in yours. And I think that's something to reconsider. Would you pray with me? Jesus, there's so many temptations right now. And the, and the first of them probably being for those of us who are experiencing grief and hardship and pain is to think that for the last 40 minutes or so, um, the church has just minimized it. And so I ask that you would help them to remember the things that we said that, was, that, that gives full credence and credit to the pain that they're experiencing. For others of us, Lord, we are simply convinced that because of that, you can't be, or you can't be good. And so I just ask that you would help, not to eliminate our doubts, but to make yourself bigger than them. We can't do that. Our hearts are prone to wander. So instead, we need you to do it. So please, Jesus, as we lift you up, would you let everything you've done, and especially the cross, eclipse everything else. You who are near to the suffering because you have suffered. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.